HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I hope everyone is tuning into Tech Bites, the show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And we seem to be having a little bit of a summer series on urban farming. And we didn't plan it, but it just kind of happened. Maybe it's because it's summertime. Maybe it's because we're happy to be out and outside and um, doing you know, things with vegetables, because that's what we like to do in the summer. I'm happy today to welcome back Robert Lang, who is a return guest. He is the CEO and founder of a company called Farm One. He was first on the show, episode number 145, back in July 2018. Amazing. Farm One is an indoor vertical farm located in Tribeca, and they are literally across the hall from a restaurant called the Terra. And his co-guest on that show was Chef Ronnie Emborg, who's the chef at a Terra. And we had a really fascinating conversation about um, how do you create terroir and flavors and seasonality when you're growing something indoors, presumably without seasons, and it's a terroir that you create. It was a really interesting episode, and I have been following Farm One over the years. They've launched a podcast. They've launched a bunch of new things for consumers so regular people can can give it a try and see what they're up to as long as some new product lines and everything. And I thought it would be a great time to check in and find out what Farm One is up to. They're also getting ready to move to a bigger, newer facility 
later this summer. Robert, thank you for joining us this morning. Great to be here with you, Jennifer. Great to be back. It's kind of amazing to think um, you're back. We're not physically together. We're on Zencaster remotely. We can't even see each other. Um, but back three years later, um, you were for, you were on in July 2018, and now it's June 2021. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and that show, we were in the Heritage Radio Network studio, which is to repurpose shipping containers at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with actually gardens on the rooftop and um, in the Tiki Garden and all kinds of, of growing things. It seems like such a long time ago. Yeah, it does. It certainly does. Lots, lots of has lots of things have changed, and yeah, we're building this new farm now, and like we're doing new products, and obviously COVID was a huge thing for us, so it couldn't be more different. And I think back in 2018, we had no idea, you know, what was going to happen. But yeah, as I said, good to be back and, and <laughs> happy to talk to you about it all. Yeah, it's it's really um, it's nice to check in with people and and see the arc. And you know, I have to say, in the food tech space. We talk to a lot of founders on this show, and not all of them can come back with stories of how their businesses have grown. I mean, like any starting any kind of business, um, you know, getting out of the first year or two is often challenging. Um, and then in the food tech space, that's no different. So it's always nice to um, check in with people who are growing and building, literally. Yeah. So tell us, um, I, I think. You know, it would be really great to hear how your 2020 went. Um, you know, you are indoor farming, and, and we think of that sort of as as being sheltered from, you know, what happens in the outside world. You were also a business that was principally growing for uh, restaurants and, you know, really growing beautiful things to do, you know, for high-end chefs to be using. And, and that certainly, I'm sure, having that industry go completely dormant for a period of time. I'm sure had an impact on your business as well. So just if you would, if you would just walk us through sort of what happened with Farm One in 2020. Yeah, it's becoming, I think, you know, this sort of standard question, how was your 2020? It's almost like, how was your war? Or how was, you know, how was the birth of your child or something? It's such a dramatic kind of thing. So 2020 started for us really well. We we just raised money at the beginning of the year and the money was going to be used to expand our existing concept. And, and that was, as you said, all about selling fine products to restaurants. And so edible flowers and rare herbs and microgreens and these really specific things that chefs you know, have trouble getting locally otherwise. And we were about to uh, take on a new space in Manhattan. We were going to be expanding our tours and classes, which was another big piece of our revenue. And so, yeah, we were really excited about the year ahead. And of course, as very quickly, you know, COVID came around and the lockdown happened, you know, our restaurant customers, of course, had to close. And, you know, like everyone else, we thought, hey, maybe this is a few weeks kind of thing. Um, Maybe we'll be open again in a couple of months. You know, we, we had that kind of optimism. And of course, as a company, we had, you know, employees, we had staff, we we had things that we had growing, of course, on the farm. And so, you know, the idea of just sort of shutting down was not really something we wanted to contemplate. Um, and, you know, luckily we had the support of our new investors and and some runway in terms of cash to kind of figure things out. But, you know, what a terrible time for all of our customers and, you know, what a terrible experience for those 
people running restaurants and we would get calls, you know, every few days saying, hey, we're, we're closing down, you know, and, and just sad news from, from a lot of people. And so, of course, as a company, we had to figure out what to do. Um, you know, we lost all of our revenue overnight, pretty much. Um, we had a farm that was growing really nice stuff. Uh, and, of, and so, of course, like, we started to do things like donating some product. We also started to try to sell some of the um, fine products that we were growing. So selling things to consumers directly through the website. And it kind of worked out in the, like people love the product and, you know, people were buying, um, you know, our fennel and our like viola flowers and, and things like that. But, you know, as you remember, it was kind of a weird time as well where, um, you know, no one was really sure what was going on. And of course, people were not having dinner parties or anything like that, and, or the kind of, you know, making the kind of food that would require this kind of really high-end ingredient. And so we were really just struggling. We were, we were getting people buying stuff, but it wasn't sufficient. We were also trying to keep people employed on the team, but it was, you know, it was tough because nobody knew what was safe to do. And, um, you know, it was just very unpredictable. And so the summer was really, really tough. And it, the summer kind of ended with us having to lay off some staff, uh, not the whole team, but quite a significant number, uh, really bringing, coming back down to a very small team and trying to figure out what do we do next, you know? So one of the things, if, if I could just ask a, a quick question, one of the things that um, we don't really talk about that much or think about that much when we're looking at the restaurant industry over the course of the pandemic and what's happening now in terms of um, business, um, health and solvency and things like that. The restaurant industry is a very strange credit system where it's the way it's set up. It's, it's different from other businesses in that you're kind of always running on credit based on money you're going to make like the coming weekend or the coming season and the way um, accounts payable are set up with restaurants and their vendors. And something that some restaurant, some restaurateurs talked about briefly when they were talking about closing what they were doing and the finances and everything were, um, you know, the long, the long lead payments to their vendors and suppliers. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about, you know, restaurants close, and of course, then that means you're not delivering anything, um, how, how did that leave you just in terms of just in a general sense with restaurants you typically being like on a on a pay schedule where they're going to pay their vendors 30 days out or 60 days out or 90 days out? Yeah, was yeah. That, was that something also? Because I think people, when we, th- when we talk about um, what we need to do to help the restaurant industry or save the restaurant industry or, you know, take a look at how critical restaurants are to the fabric of our, you know, local economic communities. We're thinking about sort of the transaction that we experience. I go in, I sit down, I eat, I give you money, you know, a a waiter makes tips and then I go. And then we think of that being a sufficient ecosystem economically to sort of keep the wheels turning. But people, I don't know, are really aware of the fact that when restaurants closed, they left a lot of their vendors, um, with, with big sort of like gaping, um, you know, receivables. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, especially for us, because we were working mostly with independent restaurants, you know, most of them were not part of a large group. Most of them did not have big investors that could carry them over. And so a lot of them were really, you know, just a couple of weeks from closing down, even in the best of times. 
Um, and so when restaurants started to close down and we stopped delivering, of course, we had a bunch of receivables outstanding. And it's sort of also like an ethical kind of question, like how, you know, is there any point us trying to hound a bunch of independent restaurants for, you know, like several hundred dollars, but like something that we know that they can't pay. We know that they're trying to keep their staff you know, they're trying to compensate their staff as best they can. And so it's it's sort of a fruitless endeavor as well for us to try to go around town chasing down all these couple of hundred dollars. And so what we did was we tried to prioritize collecting money from, you know, really the companies that we knew could pay it, the, the larger groups, the restaurants that were more established. And, um, you know, I think that policy was okay, but we, we definitely left a bunch of money on the table. There's definitely, you know, some small restaurants out there that, you know, they owe us a little bit of money, but it's definitely not, you know, it's not a grudge. And, and I think we, we dealt with it as best we could. And weirdly enough, I just got a check yesterday from a restaurant that seems to have reopened and now is, you know, paying off its balance. So I very much appreciate that, but yeah, it was a sort of tricky thing. And, you know, we, we obviously try to be part of this ecosystem and we want long-term relationships with chefs and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to burn that by trying to grab after every last dollar when everyone's in a really tough situation. So, you know, hopefully we dealt with that well um, and but, hopefully other people did too. And but you yourselves are a small business also. Yeah. You know, you're not, yeah. you're not a large industrial agricultural company that, you know, is publicly traded and, you know, you have right. lots and lots of dollars and lots and lots of, you know, government funding or things coming in also. So there's a, a real um, domino effect from small business to small business to small business. Um, mm -hmm. If you are trying to work independently with independent people and independent businesses, you know, trying to sort of forge ahead to do something else and, um you know, you're a small business also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and, and then beyond that, we've got employees and, you know, there's this sort of triage, right? When you have to lay off people, you're, you know, in a normal economic climate, um, I don't like laying people off, but we've had to do it sometimes. And in a normal economic climate, you're pretty reassured that they can go and get a job somewhere else. But of course, during COVID, the moment you lay someone off, you're pretty sure they're not going to get another job for a long time. And so, that led to you know us trying to just make sure if there's someone really vulnerable on the team that we can maybe keep them employed for a little bit longer or or do something. And so we just try to do our best. Um, and luckily, we've been able to rehire uh, several folks who we had to lay off, and so they're back on the team, and we're you know starting to build that team back up. And and you know I think there's been a overall a good arc to that, um, and we're feeling pretty positive. And so. Yeah, I mean, I can sort of continue the story. Right, absolutely. We, you know, I, there was just a yeah. question that I wanted to ask because it sounds, um, I didn't want to oversimplify the idea of, oh, and then the restaurant's closed and we lost that business. Yeah. It's not just yeah. that you lost the opportunity to sell um, to sell your products today and tomorrow, but then you also lost the ability to recoup the things you had already sold. Which yeah, 100%. Is part of the, it's, it's, it's part of the equation. I do think that... Um, you know, in terms of like moving forward and rebuilding, you know, communities and restaurants and things like that, it's important for people to have a, a real transparent idea of how it actually works. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the other really fun thing was we had some advanced bookings for tours and classes and events that, of course, we had to refund as mm -hmm. well. So right, of course. Like, 
on top of everything else, yeah. you know. So yeah. you are, you're going through the summer season, you're still farming because plants don't know what's happening. They keep growing and they keep producing, which is great from one point of view. And um, you're looking for different opportunities and different markets now to sell yeah. your products to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that what we we're very what we've always been confident in is the quality of our product. We grow really, really good stuff, and also we're able to harvest and deliver same day. So the freshness of that product is kind of unparalleled. You know, when you go to a normal grocery store and you pick salad off the shelf, it's something that's normally been harvested a couple of days before at best. You know, and so we knew we had that amazing freshness. We knew we had an interesting selection of greens that other people didn't have. And and so we thought, hey, okay, well, what what if we do a sort of version of a CSA um, and get people to you know subscribe to our greens on a weekly basis? And the last thing that kind of tied it all together was that we realized we could deliver in a reusable packaging. Um, so the idea being that we don't create any plastic waste because we deliver into a, a container that you take home. Uh, and then we pick it up the next week when we drop off your next delivery. And it sounds really simple. It's sort of like the milkman kind of thing. Um, but it's something that, you know, in normally grocery stores is not not possible at all. And when you think about people and the amount of groceries we buy, like there's so much plastic waste normally associated with that. We thought, wouldn't this be kind of compelling and interesting to provide this really great product in a reusable container for weekly delivery? And so we launched that, uh, I think at the end of September, it went really well. You know, we, we primarily kind of just promoted it to people who were already like knowledgeable about Farm One, who had been for a tour or had got some product previously. Um, and it was great. We, we kind of sold out of our capacity on the farm within a few weeks. Um, and we have since then, you know, been building on that program and had really happy customers. And so that pivot was uh, something that took a little time, uh, but something that we're really now, you know, excited about and actually is just turning into a brand new business for us. How difficult was it to find the container? I mean, certainly reusable containers and in all of the delivery, CSA, grocery delivery, meals, all those types of things. The the packaging is really an issue, um, as you mentioned, Um and, you know, especially during the pandemic, New York City, um, you know, in in spite of, you know, the headlines of all the people, you know, of, about people leaving the city, there still were quite a few people who stayed. And the number of, you know, cardboard boxes and containers and like mountains and mountains of, you know, delivery packaging is just breathtaking. Um, yeah. It seems yeah. like it's a really challenging thing. Otherwise, you would assume that more companies would do something reusable. Yeah. You know, the other context I had is that um, in my sort of spare time over the past few years, I've I've done some consulting work with Google. And one of the projects I've really worked on heavily was around plastic waste and how to kind of keep track of all the plastic waste in the world. And I, you know, as a lot of people do when they start sustainability projects, I just got really overwhelmed by this sense that we're, you know, it's not, it's cliche to say, but we're kind of destroying the planet with all this plastic that we're creating. And I also really learned about the fact that recycling, certainly in the US, is almost a myth. You know, it, like a lot of the time when we think we're putting something into recycling, it ends up in landfill or we're or putting the wrong to some thing. some other country. 
Yeah, or it's, it's going sent to Southeast Asia and it's, it's someone mm -hmm. else's problem. Or we're putting the wrong thing into the recycling because actually our recycling system here can't handle that particular type of plastic, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so I got really concerned about that. And even before COVID, we were delivering to chefs in reusable containers as well. And that was something that, you know, we had to push for a little bit. But, you know, once we got it going, it was, it was something they liked. And so I thought, hey, we got to do something about this. And the, the last piece of it, of course, is that you can only really start a reusables program if you've got direct contact with the customer. It's really hard otherwise. And so because we're small, because we're a tiny farm delivering to a very, very local community where we control the delivery, you know, we have our own bikes and, and we, we have that direct contact with the customer, we can actually do it all. We can do that really simple version of a circular economy. And, and you know, people... Um, have off, you know, when you when you kind of challenge larger companies about plastic use, uh, I have you know some sympathy for this. They they kind of go like, "Hey, we would love to, but it's just way too complicated for us." You know, we're working with distributors and wholesalers, and we're working with different grocery stores, and like, how is it even possible for us to to not use plastic? Whereas we, as a small farm in a in a city, we can do it. And so I think that it's incumbent on us to do it like we have to do it um and and that's why that's why we're going about it and you know originally when we started the subscription we did offer people the option to use a um disposable container which was you know a compostable container and it was sort of the best we could do but after a few weeks of that we really decided like no this is not what we're going to do um we're going to be all about the reusables and now uh, we've started to offer other products as well, and they're all in reusables. And I think, yeah, I'm I'm very sure we're just not going to use disposable plastic anymore as any part of our delivery to our customers. Well, that is fantastic. And, you know, certainly having um, examples of businesses doing something is potentially a roadmap for other businesses to try and do that or consumers having the experience of, wow, this is great. Yeah. Um, why, why aren't my other delivery vendors or, you know, subscriptions or markets and things like that using this? So, um, certainly showing that something is possible and functional is often the best way people, I think one of the things to come out of 2020 and the pandemic is there are so many modes of behavior, um, from work life to, you know, community life to communication and arts and, transportation and so many things where we have for such a long time said, oh, we can't do that. We can't work this way. We can't live this way. It's not possible. It would never work. It wouldn't be productive. It wouldn't be viable. We wouldn't like it. People won't do it. And there's a lot of things that actually turns out you can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And not only can you do them, but maybe people like them better or prefer them. And, you know, they're great. So discovery in a strange way, you know, I guess necessity and mother of invention and all those cliches, <laughs> you know, certainly 2020 is like, you know, the biggest, the biggest unilateral global boost of, you know, how, how can we make this work? Yeah, I totally agree. And I could talk forever about this, by the way, so you might have to stop me. But I think that, you know, 2020 for a lot of things, like it, that was the first time in my life I went to a protest, you know, in mm -hmm. 2020. That was, you know, the first time I started to kind of reevaluate like the city and, and where we're living and 
Um, obviously living with my partner, you know, in close contact for so long, like, you know, that was actually a great experience for us. But, you know, the whole year was a very sort of learning experience. And I think that, you know, when it comes to plastic waste, when it comes to how employees are treated, when it comes to how we work with the community, I really started to realize that, you know, like I'm, I'm from a culture, I'm from the UK, I'm from Australia, I lived in Japan, I'm from cultures where, you know, there's universal healthcare, there are various other worker protections, all that kind of stuff. And when I came to the US, I sort of was a bit frustrated and was sort of, you know, you, you start to kind of blame people politically, like, oh, why, why won't uh, Congress, you know, make this a law and that kind of stuff. And I, and I kind of realized like, hey, we got to do this stuff as business owners. If we want to fix the recycling problem or the plastic problem, like we cannot wait for the government to do that. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, while we can campaign for a higher minimum wage and we should, like as, as small business owners, like we have to take the lead on that. We have to provide um, the things that are missing. And, you know, and that's why, like, we do provide healthcare and benefits and 401k, and we provide well above minimum wage, and we provide training. And, and I think that what you're starting to see is other businesses doing that as well, because they're starting to realize, okay, this is, this is an essential thing now. And if the government isn't doing it, like, we've got to do it. Um, and yeah, as I said, I could talk on this for a while, but but we <laughs> we're we're excited to kind of do things beyond the minimum now, whether it comes to plastic or employees or or all other kinds of other things going on. Well, I think you know, being being passionate about something is probably why um, you are an entrepreneur and have the business that you have. Certainly, most of the people, if not all the people, who have come onto this show to talk about their businesses are passionate about something and wanting to do something better or innovative. And oftentimes that's not just about the product that they're selling or getting, whether that be, you know, a, a tech platform or, you know, a food item or an ingredient or, you know, and, and anything that may be. And, you know, the interesting thing is that building, you know, building a better product and building a better business, you know, what, what elements does that mean? You know, back in the day of like car production, it meant like assembly line and being more efficient. And today, building a better business is about not just the product, but all the things that you've mentioned. Um, yeah. And we, we've seen the progression of those things coming through consumer goods and foods and things like that over, you know, gradually over time. And I think that, you know, the analogy that I use most frequently on this show is sort of the evolution of uh, chocolate and coffee from the consumer mm. point of view. You know, coffee just at one point was a giant, you know, you got a giant can and it was coffee. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. ground coffee. And like, that was kind of it. And then it was coffee beans. And then it was where, where is it from in the world and how is it processed? And then it's, is it organic? Is it fair trade? Is it, you know, produced? Is it community? Is it all these different things? So as, people become more and more interested in, aware of, and the producers become more interested in promoting not just the bean, but how that bean comes to life. People become more and more aware of these things. Um, and then now you have a completely different framework of points that you're going to make your decision on for your coffee or for your chocolate. Yeah, yeah. I guess the, you know, the flip side is, as a consumer now... 
you know, if you're a thoughtful consumer, you feel like, okay, I got to read the label. I got to discover about the company. I got to look into the social media. I got to find out if the CEO did something stupid, you know, a few years ago. And <laughs> like, I got to do all of this. And and so we've put a lot of burden on the consumer to do the right thing. And, and frankly, I think for a lot of people, it's exhausting as well. You know, a lot of people are just trying to feed their family and they don't have time to discover if the carbon footprint of the cereal is, you know, too much. And so I think it's partly our job and, and that's what we want to do at Farm One is to make it kind of easy to be um, happy that, you know, you're doing something sustainable. So, you know, you get your product from us, you know that there's no plastic waste, you know that the person who delivered it to you is a real person with a full-time job and they're going to be the same person every time. And and you know that the greens were grown without pesticides and all this kind of stuff. And hopefully that allows you in a small part of your life to go like, ah, oh, okay, all right, I can <laughs> stop worrying about this, you know? Um, and, and the other thing I think about specifically about sustainability is that often it's, you know, it's, it's sort of used to make other people feel guilty. You know, it's, it's kind of this thing where, oh, okay, do I use paper or plastic? Oh, it's or, all, all, all you know? of it. All of it can become yeah. that if, if pointed, you know, at someone and with a certain amount of veracity, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so mm -hmm. it leaves people confused. And, you know, and I think for a lot of people, they just go like, forget it. I'm not even going to try because whatever I do is wrong, you know. And and I think like we got to make it easier for people and we got to, yeah, we've got to, we've got to sort of like just make it something that's the default. Uh, but, and, and, and we can, like, that's the cool thing about it. Like we can, that's like, and that's, and that's partly like the point of urban farming is that we bring some food production back closer to people so that they can kind of see it and they know what's going on. Um, and they get a better product, you know, which is why I love urban agriculture. And we just did a show last week about urban viticulture. It's a show, um, with a company called Rooftop Reds and they are growing, grapes on a rooftop in the Brooklyn Navy Yards and they make wine and they just installed a solar fabric pergola so that they can reduce their carbon footprint to as close to zero as possible. So they use the solar fabric to power the restaurant and the activities that are on the roof. And it's just a fascinating idea to think about making, you know, having a vineyard on a roof in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, so cool. They do great events as well. Uh, yeah, it's really they do. Fun. They do. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a great episode. And then when I realized that we were going to talk today, I said, well, I guess we're doing an urban agriculture series, which is probably appropriate for summertime, because that's when people think about being outside and farming and the farmer's market is so beautiful. But urban agriculture is interesting because it's sort of all year round. I mean, uh, Rooftop Reds is outdoors, so they are, um, you know, impacted by the weather, but you're indoors, so you're not really impacted by the weather. Yeah, not at all. So we use a, a technique called hydroponics, which is growing plants in a water-based nutrient solution instead of soil. And that's really popular as a technique to use indoors. And we're also using LED lights. And so we're not depending on the, the sunlight or, or weather or anything like that. We can grow year round. And, and as you mentioned, you know, our, our farm in Tribeca is actually in a basement. Um, and we're just in the middle of building a new farm in Brooklyn, uh, which is inside a warehouse building. And so you can kind of do this stuff 
almost anywhere in a city. And if you look at a city like New York, there are thousands of unused spaces. Um, there are basements, there are warehouse buildings, there are, you know, people even do this classically with cannabis in their closet, you know, and, and that's the, that sort of speaks to the resilience of this technology. And what I love about it is that you find so many different companies doing different things with the technology. You've got companies like Teens for Food Justice that, or organizations like Teens for Food Justice that build farms in high schools and teach people how to, how to grow and they give people contact with their food. Uh, you've got folks like Oco Farms, which has an aquaponics farm in Brooklyn, um, which has fish, you know, living alongside the plants and, and creating nutrients for those plants. And so uh, there's, there's many, many forms of this, um, and we're only going to see more and more of it. And I think, we're, you know, we're really sort of starting to see this kind of food become really readily accessible and available and starting to be at the right quantities for it to really make an impact on the city, uh, which is which is so exciting. Accessibility is really one of the key things, and we have really tried to keep information and conversations like this accessible to everyone since Heritage Radio Network has been on the air for oh, I think about, I think it's twelve years now. We have thirty-five live shows a week. We have tens of thousands of shows in the archives, and we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like yourselves, grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay with us and find out who is supporting this episode. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, Garden Design and Coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at gardencult.com. We are talking about indoor urban farming with Robert Lang, CEO and founder of Farm One. This is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. Do you have an interesting story? Are you a founder? Is there a trend that you've seen in your city? Is there a trend that you wish would come to your city? We would love to hear from you. Story ideas, comments about this episode and any of the other 200-some episodes of Tech Bites we've done. You can get in touch with us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at techbyteshrn. You can find us on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. If you really love the show, hit your favorite platform, subscribe, and leave us a fantastic five-star review. It'll help us. It'll help more people find us and help us make more radio. 
Right now we're talking with Robert about how he is about to start making more herbs, flowers, mushrooms, vegetable, milk, smoothies, because he's about to expand the size of the farm, which is so exciting. Yeah, exactly. So we sold out of our existing space in Tribeca, which admittedly was not huge, but it was a good signal to us to say, hey, people really want this stuff. And so since November, which feels like, you know, forever ago, uh, we've been looking for a new farm space. And we, you know, we've been through the ringer in New York City real estate. We found a couple of spaces, we made bids, the landlord pulled out, all this kind of stuff happened. Now, we all know in New York City what looking for an apartment looks like, yeah. what look, <laughs> you know, what um, looking for, you know, maybe a townhouse, a co-op, an Airbnb, a rental, you yeah. know, maybe some holy grail of like rent control or something like that. What, what are you looking for as an urban farmer when you say you're looking for a new farm space? What does that yeah. mean? Yeah, so we're looking for, it tends to be some kind of warehouse space. We want something with a very level floor. We want something that has a good ceiling height, maybe 12, 14, 16 feet. We want something that is going to be, we, we don't want a property that we need to really like massively renovate. Uh, ideally, we want something with a lot of contiguous floor space, so not a bunch of complicated layouts or columns and things like that. Um, and we want it to be accessible from the street, ideally easy for trucks to load things in and out, easy for us to get in and out, freight elevators, of course, and that kind of stuff. So in a way, you know, not that complicated, but in other ways, of course, you know, it gets complicated. Um, in, in New York City, like what you'll find is that people who want to build very, very large vertical farms is they tend to do that actually on the sort of outside of the city, or there's quite a few in, in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and, and you might find people looking for that kind of space on the outskirts of Brooklyn. We were trying to do something a little bit different where we wanted to be in a neighborhood, because, you know, we want to sell to real people and we want to deliver to them directly. So why don't we want to be a little bit closer to them? And so we were looking around Gowanus in Brooklyn, which is, you know, close to the canal. There's quite a few sort of warehouse spaces there. It's a little bit risky to be there as a commercial tenant because of the flood risk, you know. So um, we eventually found a fantastic space in Prospect Heights. And so Prospect Heights is just north of Prospect Park in Brooklyn, uh, quite a leafy neighborhood. There's actually not a lot of warehouse spaces there, but we found one. Uh, and we found that in March and signed the lease and and actually got access to the space um, at, the, at sort of mid-May. And so it's the middle of June right now, and we're literally building it out. We just painted a big mural on the side of the farm with what we think is a pretty positive message. It's definitely not an ad. And we're trying to make that building, <laughs> you know, it was probably the worst building on the street. It was covered in graffiti. It had bars all over the windows. It was dirty. And I think we're cleaning it up. We're turning it into something nice. We're turning it into what we hope is part of the community. Uh, and that's going to take a few months, but we're hoping to start to plant the first seeds there in a matter of weeks and finally be able to deliver product to the people who've been on a wait list for us for uh, getting on for six months now. So hopefully they'll be able to get their salad greens pretty soon. 
That's really, um, that's a great story. It's interesting that you say that Prospect Heights is a leafy neighborhood um, because it sort of doesn't matter if the outside is leafy or not, but maybe that has a nice feeling to the, um, you know, where your, where your farm is located. Yeah. I think it, yeah. I think it's an interesting idea that you were wanting to be in a neighborhood. I mean, typically, you know, indoor, outdoor farming, we do not think of farms as being a part of a neighborhood in an urban environment simply because space is at such a premium. We always think about it being outside a city, in the country, sometimes very far away. But your your goal, it, it's also a little bit of a different um, paradigm that you're looking at in terms of you're not you're not scaling to sort of produce, you know, millions of pounds of your produce and flowers to sell to millions of people across the country. You're looking to create something much smaller that's going to sort of sustain in a in in the block radius of your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you could say that there are many problems with agriculture and the food system in this country, but I think that one of them is that we're too far from our food. You know, we buy salad greens that were grown in California and shipped across the country in trucks, and we have no idea what the working conditions were like uh, when they were planted. We don't really care as consumers whether they use pesticides or not, because, you know, that farm is a long way away from me. So how do I know? We're buying product that's imported from other countries. And, you know, I don't blame any consumer for wanting that. Like, I love strawberries in the winter sometimes, and I buy them too, you know. But, like, I think that if we can bring some food production back to the city, then we have a closer connection to it, which means we care how it was done. We can employ people in the community to grow that food, which means that, you know, they know more about their food. They have more closer access to healthy food. And ultimately, then we can also do things, you know, like what I just talked about with plastic. We can do, you know, nice things where like a product is coming from a few blocks away instead of thousands of miles away. And, you know, the nice thing is about all of that is it's also a fresher product. It's, you know, we harvest and we deliver within a few hours. And like it's literally, unless you're growing something on your windowsill in New York, I don't see how you could get things any quicker than that. Um, and so I think this is obviously it's not going to be possible to grow every single crop this way. You know, you're not going to get wheat fields in in the Bronx. Like, but I think for some crops, specifically very perishable ones, very sensitive crops, you know, things like your salad greens, strawberries is actually a great example. Um, other things like that. This is a great way to grow. And I think it's something that our city really needs more and more of to be a healthy city. And so what do you, outside of identifying what types of plants and products people would like to eat, what are the other components about the way you're building the business to make it a neighborhood business? And I'm also very interested in the piece about, um, you mentioned very briefly, but everything thus far is delivered by bicycle. And delivery people on bicycles in New York City has always, has been increasingly uh, a real topic of, of contention, some would say, um, and especially with what happened in terms of the pandemic and restaurants closing and then delivery and third-party delivery apps and, um, you know, everybody staying at home and wanting things brought to them. You know, we talk so much about the convenience and the amazing services that, 
you know, we have available today. But the piece that we've talked the least about is the last mile and the person who physically actually brings you your food or your delivery or your groceries. And many times the way the system is set up, it's, it's really, um, they're almost sort of, you know, like the, the new, the newest tier of employee who's really not being, uh, well looked after. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've been doing last mile logistics in a small way since 2016. And we've always done that with direct employees of the company. And as we've gone on, we've given more and more benefits to these employees. And we, we think what we've got now is a really good, stable job. And, you know, part of that is because we believe that's the right way of doing it. Part, part of that is just we get a better result. You know, we have people doing routes and they do the same route. So they get to know the people, they get to know the doorman, you know, they get to know uh, the people receiving the product. They're, they're part of our company. And I don't really want it any other way now. Um, and I, you know, this is not really us trying to call out like a bigger delivery company or anything like that. It's just like, this is the right way to do this. And part of having a neighborhood farm is employing people, you know, from around the city and in the neighborhood, employing people consistently. Um, and yeah, the, the sort of gig economy, like doesn't, it doesn't work for that. It's, it's, it's not what we want to do. And so that's one part of it. And then also, you know, what we realized is we grow a product that is, it's essentially a premium product. It's not something, um, that we can offer to everyone. It's, it tends to be a little bit more expensive to grow in the city right now. And hopefully that cost comes down and down over time and we can make that product accessible to more and more people. But the other thing we can do to have an impact is we can employ people and we can employ people who don't really need a ton of experience in hydroponics or indoor farming or anything. They just need to be able to pick up the skills and we can train them. So we can sort of train people pretty much from scratch to work in these farms and we can give them a job that, as I said, it has benefits and 401k and all these other good things. And we can give them what we hope is a really long career uh, in urban agriculture. And you're going to see, as I said, like more and more of these farms. And so building a career in urban agriculture is going to become a more and more viable thing. And what we're excited to do is also, you know, work with organizations like Teens for Food Justice that we talked about, uh, like the folks over at Collective Fair in Brownsville, uh, other people who are building, you know, um, communities and, and places around agriculture. And we can hopefully be part of a really good ecosystem that's about positive food growing in the city and also, you know, also, frankly, we can do that and be a profitable company and grow. Um, and so it's all about having those pieces come together. But I think having a really, you know, short-sighted view and treating workers like numbers and having everybody just accessible through an app and not really thinking about the people, that's not how to do it. And I think it's becoming clear that's not really a long-term viable solution. And so we want to do stuff that's much more, much more real, you know? It's, uh, I was talking with um, a chef a few weeks ago, oh, maybe actually at this point, it's probably a couple months ago. And he said that when he goes back to working in restaurants or is going to open a restaurant, he wanted to build a restaurant that was going to be sustainable by the neighborhood in like a 16 block radius. Yeah. And that he was less interested in, you know, a destination from even other parts of the city, let alone other parts of the country or world in terms of sustaining that business, but have it be really sustainable in a much, much smaller neighborhood capacity. Um, 
And it's yeah. an interesting way to look at it. Um, if, you know, sort of all businesses were thinking about that, at least in the urban environment, um, it would be interesting to see what would happen. I have one last question for you um, that I can ask you on this program. I have many, many other questions <laughs> that I yeah. will perhaps ask you at a later date when I come out to Prospect Heights to visit the farm in the fall when it's actually up and running. Um, so when you opened the Tribeca Farm in 2016 and, you know, urban agriculture, restaurants, beautiful ingredients, what was on your roadmap for five years from then? Because we're five years from then. And how much of the business that you have today that you're building is a pivot in the last 12 to 16 months? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously things <laughs> have changed quite a bit. I think that what I thought at the time was, you know, the uh, the rare ingredients that we were growing were going to be compelling for chefs. And that turned out to be true. Uh, what I thought was we were going to build a bunch of these tiny chef's farms in different cities around the country. Um, and, you know, that didn't turn out to be the path that we took. And, you know, everything took a lot longer than we thought. But I think that what stayed really consistent is we were lucky enough pretty early on to latch onto a system that allowed us to grow really, really good plants. You know, like if you get a three Michelin star chef to get excited about your product, you know, you have something really great. And so what we're doing, you know, who we're delivering to now has changed, although we, we will deliver to restaurants again in some capacity. What, we've, what we're selling is in some way changed, but that core of growing things very close to people at a very high quality has stayed consistent. I personally, you know, I, I started this business in 2016 coming out of a different startup and I had been through some life changes and all that kind of stuff. And I, I kind of thought, you know, as everyone does going into a new thing, I kind of thought it would be easier than it was. And it turned out to be 50 times harder and, you know, more stressful and took longer and all that kind of stuff. But what I got out of it was I learned a ton more about the city, about the people in the city, about how the food system really works. And so now I think I've, I'm able to run a better company where we are doing things better than what we would have done back in 2016. So it's been a really arduous path and I don't wish it upon anyone else, but I also am really glad that we've been through this and I'm, you know, just so excited to do it in a new community and, and do it in a larger scale. And I don't know, I'm just like really, really excited right now and, uh, and happy that we've gone through all these difficult changes for the better. Well, it's certainly, um, happy to have you come through it, you know, successfully and, and with enthusiasm and with forward momentum. I think another thing about um, the entrepreneurial space and the business space and the startup space, which is analogous to life also, you know, when, you, when people start a new innovative company, the metrics for success that they're looking at are very specific. You know, they're looking mm. at downloads or traction or you know, product viability. They're looking for things that are going to attract investors or venture capital. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're looking to disrupt something. And the things that make a startup successful or attractive to people who populate the startup ecosystem are very different from things that maybe make a business successful 
in a neighborhood or in life or for the planet or for the people who work there yeah, <laughs> and those kinds of things. So I think there's also um, something that's an interesting uh, result of 2020 is people around the world have had a period of, you know, assessment and reckoning and reevaluation of the things that are important to them. And I think the way coming out of it, the way people do business now as a result of that in terms of what are the success metrics that you're looking at, what makes a business successful, what do you want to achieve with your business um, has evolved, I think, especially in the in the food space beyond what some of those traditional you know success points were that people were looking for and driving for. Um, I, I would guess that you know there's not a lot you know back in 2016 a goal was not to have on staff bicycle delivery people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, these things evolve, but I think for the better. I'm really, you know, really glad to be able to know more about this stuff to uh, you know appreciate the people that we have working for us and getting to know them better and really just you know building up this community it's like it's great that's the really valuable thing and of course you know we have investors we want to make money we want to be bigger as a business and I'm very confident we will be but the journey I sound very, you know, corny, but the journey is really just as important and the people working for us all along the way and the people we can communicate with and 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 be part of the community with that's just as important and I I love appreciating that. I love the plants that we grow and how slowly they grow sometimes and I love the surprising things that we come across that people do with the product and I love, you know, hoping that we and a bunch of other urban ag folks can be part of building something that's, you know, just better for the city. Uh, I really hope we can do that. Is it possible to have a, a look or a thought about where you're going to be five years from now? You know, <laughs> from 20, 2016 oh, to 2021 to 2026? I, you know, I just want to be modest about it. And I hope that we have the employees that we have now have stuck around and, and, built a really great career. We just hired this young guy called Taylor and he came actually through Teens for Food Justice and uh, has been working in East New York. And um, he's super passionate about urban agriculture. I'd love to see folks like that running, you know, a big farm one day or not a very big farm, you know, one of our biggest farms, which is not very big. I'd, I'd love to see that, you know, if we can have people stay and if we can have people who are buying our greens now stick with us for five years, that's a huge win in my book. And and I'd love to see that in other parts of the country and different places and making sure that, you know, each one of those farms is representative of the neighborhood that it's in. That would be a big treat, I think. Well, hopefully we will have you back on before um, the three-year mark this time (laughs) to see what you're up to, maybe back in the fall after you um, open the brand new Prospect Heights farm. Um, I wanted to thank Robert Lang for coming on the show today. He is the CEO and founder of a company called Farm One. If you are interested in becoming a member or taking a look or learning more, they have a podcast. There's a lot happening on their website. Website is farm.one, spelled out O-N-E. You can find them on social media at farm.one. 
um, it's great. There's a lot of information, and we love that there are more podcasters. <laughs> I want to thank DJ Uptown Nico for the soundtrack theme song to Tech Bytes, Nomad a CPU track. I want to thank Matt Patterson, who is our engineer and actually the most important person on this show because he makes it all possible for you to listen to. Thank Heritage Radio Network for providing an amazing platform and global audience for us to talk about these things, save the conversations, listen to them later for prosperity and for compare and contrast. And I want to thank you, our listeners and our members, for staying with us, listening, making donations, and helping us keep the lights on. I'm Jennifer Leutze, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>